And we're to uh, back to Nehemiah, turning to chapter 8 this evening. We made it through the marathon of chapter 7. You did a good job. Um, I, there's only about a dozen or so difficult names in, in chapter 8. So since we did so well in chapter 7, I have um, a great expectations for you hanging on tonight. Um, Cliff and Bree could not, could not be here this evening, but for most evening services this summer, uh, seven of them at least, for his internship, Cliff is going to be uh, preaching a series through the I Am Sayings of Jesus as they're found in the Gospel of John. So um, we will uh, be blessed to hear him. That will start next week, and then when I have the opportunity um, to preach, we'll continue to work our way through Nehemiah. And um, that, should, that should finish up also this summer, and we can begin a series, the Lord willing, in the Beatitudes this fall in the evening. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to read the first 12 verses. This is the Word of God. We're going to give it the attention it deserves, and we're going to learn about how to give it attention actually in this passage And you're at chapter 8, verse 1, and you're going to just look up to the sentence right before it at the end of chapter 7. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from it, he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Aneah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Padeah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book. In the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, And Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. 
Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The grass withers, the flower fades. This word that we've just read, it's from our Lord and it stands forever. There was a recent op-ed, I think it was in um, March uh, in the New York Times, uh, where uh, the author said that one of the scariest statistics for the future of the United States was this, that two-thirds of fourth graders in the country are not proficient in reading. Two-thirds of fourth graders are not proficient in reading. Uh, Taken as a whole, actually, American children are worse at reading today than they were back in 1998 when the National Education Association launched what is known as Read Across America, which is still in effect today, uh, a campaign to get kids to read. They celebrated on Dr. Seuss's birthday in the spring, I believe. Um, But even since that was launched, um, children are not reading as well as they were um, then. Today, the statistics show that literacy has dropped. And the reason the writers of the New York Times said this statistic about fourth graders is scary for the future of America is because of how literacy is tied to so many other things in life. Um, Things like um, math skills, job performance, mental health, and so on. And so the idea was if our kids can't read today, what does that mean for all of us tomorrow? Um, Well, there's something scarier than poor reading in America, and that's poor reading in the church. And I'm not referring to people in the church who can't read well. I'm talking about Christians who can read but don't read their Bible. And here's a statistic for you from Lifeway Research 2019. One out of eight churchgoers, evangelical Protestant churchgoers, answered that um, how often do they read their Bible? They gave the answer seldom slash never. One out of eight professing believers. Now, nothing good can come from not reading your Bible. Nothing. Um, uh, We are a people who live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. We we live off of his word, literally. We'll die without it. We need to be people of, of this book. And Nehemiah 8 shows us the prominent place that the word of God must have in the believer's life, in the prominent place that the people of Nehemiah's day gave um, the scriptures. Uh, If we are in covenant with God, that relationship that we have is established by God's word. It is maintained by God's word. It is cultivated by God's word. There is no relationship with God if we do not have his word. And so the question is, do we even read it? Do we even give it our attention? Well, let's take a look tonight at the blessings that come when we do give God's word the attention that it deserves so that the Lord willing and by the Spirit's rejuvenating, renewing, reinvigorating power, we all leave this place tonight uh, committed and excited to read our Bibles this week. 
Um, I, I began the reading, you'll notice, at the end of chapter 7, because I really think it's critical to understand what happens in the next chapter to Nehemiah, uh, and that's this time marker that we're given there. You look there with me, at the end of chapter 7, it says, And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now, this is not a, just a kind of, oh, by the way, here's a little you know, historical note or uh, a temporal marker. There's actually theological significance and importance to this statement. And so I think the first thing that the, we could draw out from this chapter is God's good timing. That's the first of three things we're going to consider tonight, God's good timing. Now, what's the significance of it being the start of the seventh month? Well, this was the start of the high point in Israel's calendar. Uh, we're told in places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, that the seventh month kicked off what we could call the holiday season for the nation. It was kind of almost like uh, like our late November when we're getting close to Thanksgiving, and, and that's kind of the time where we are able to get out of certain responsibilities by telling people, I'll get to it after the holidays. We love that excuse, because what, what does that mean? Well, we got Thanksgiving coming up, family's going to be in town, and then there's this slew of Christmas parties, and then, you know, and the, there's church events too on top of that. We have Christmas Eve and Christmas, and then next week, New Year's Eve, and we have these parties that we have to do, family we have to see. It's a crazy time. There's a lot that we pack in. Well, that's the seventh month for Israel. The Feast of Trumpets uh, Trumpets was on the first day of the month. The Day of Atonement was on the tenth day of the month. And the Feast of Booths began on the fifteenth day of the month. In addition, according to Deuteronomy 31, you don't need to turn there, but it's verse 10 if you're interested, uh, we are told that um, the proclamation... Of the year of, in the year of Jubilee, when, uh, when that year rolled around, the time to proclaim that it was Jubilee and debts were canceled and land was returned, that happened in this seventh month as well. So really, the seventh month is the best time to be an Israelite. And the way Nehemiah structures his narrative, as we see there at the conclusion of chapter 7, I think is so that we, we read it like this. We read that Nehemiah goes back to the city... He rebuilds the walls, the 42,360 return, and they take up their residence in their old towns and their old homes just in time to celebrate this string of festivals that they had not been able to celebrate in their homes for some 70 years or so. That's, that's the way Nehemiah structures it. He wants us to see how exciting it would be that, that they finished the wall and everything just in time. Uh, for this season. You know, there's that saying, there's no place like home for the holidays. Israel got that. They understood that. And, and they're finally home for the holidays in God's good timing. They got that this year. They would never have to pass another year thinking on or even celebrating uh, the covenant faithfulness of God away from the land of God's covenant promise. They finally were back Never to leave again. And God's good timing situates the people to receive God's good word. The second thing we consider tonight. And really the main thing. We'll spend most of our time here because that's the main thing in this chapter. The emphasis of this section is the attention given to the reading, the explanation, and the application of the law of God or the word of God. Um, here we see why it is that the Jewish people became, uh, came to be known as people of the book. 
the law was central to their lives. And this really is a remarkable scene. Uh, Nehemiah 8, the first 12 verses. It's really remarkable. And if you'll allow it, if you'll kind of put your guard down or some of your skepticism or or some of your spiritual calluses, if, you'll, if you put all that aside and you'll let it, this, this chapter is very convicting. Uh, it puts us to shame as we see the way they treat their Bibles, if we could put it that way, um, the way they revered the scriptures, and compare that with the way we do today. I want us to see two things about what happens with God's good word in these verses. First, it's exalted. And second, it is explained. Okay? So it's exalted, the word of God's exalted, and then it's explained. Uh, The word of God is exalted by the people, and they do that in three ways. First, they give it their time, they give it their attention, and they give it, the word, its proper place. First, they give it their time. You notice that they, they want to spend time sitting under the reading of God's word. Notice that as the chapter begins... Uh, In verse 1, it's not that the leaders and the elders or the pastors or however we could, you know, if we thought like church leaders in those days, it's not that the leaders assembled the people and said, okay, now you got to sit down, be quiet, we're going to read the Bible for a while. It's actually the exact opposite. It's a grassroots movement that begins with the people seeking the leaders, saying, would you please read the Bible to us? It's astounding. And that's what we read there uh, in the second sentence there in verse 1. They told Ezra the scribe, they told him, the people, to bring the book of the law. The spirit of God's at work here in the nation. He's, he's, He's pricking the hearts of the people, causing them to hunger and to thirst after God's word, such that they are wanting somebody to read it to them. They want to give their time to it. Nobody is forcing them. And who do they find? The person they find is Ezra. Ezra's been in the background, really, in Nehemiah. He's, he got there to, uh, to Jerusalem 13 years earlier. And we haven't heard about him yet in Nehemiah's account. But, but here he takes a center stage, and it's appropriate because he, we're talking about the word of God. And he's the priest. He's the scribe. Uh, but it's not as though he hasn't done anything the last 13 years. Clearly, he'd been doing a preparatory work that, that is what enabled the people to say, we want to bring this guy out. We want to hear him read the Bible to us. Um, it's, it's perhaps his teaching these past 13 years that um, enabled the people to understand something that Deuteronomy 31, as I mentioned earlier, says. Uh, that there should be a holy assembly, a holy convocation, a conference Uh, At the beginning of the seventh month where the law of God is read. That's what you were supposed to do. And now they're saying, well, it's the seventh month. We're back home. Who's going to do it for us? Let's bring out Ezra. They want it read. And I think also the way Nehemiah structures this narrative is he wants us to see that it's something particularly about the completion of the walls that that, that kind of fuels their desire to read the word of God. Now that the wall is complete... There's something like a real nation again, a real people. Uh, It was God's word that formed them as a nation at Sinai. We read about that in Exodus 19, 20 through um, 21, 22, 23, 24. We read how the the book of the covenant is given to the people. And that's what constitutes them as, as a nation. 
And now as they are reassembled after the exile, they said, God, you, you formed us as a people by your word. Now reform us as a people again by your word. Read us the law, Ezra. And furthermore, though, now that the wall is complete, they have, for the first time since they've been back, and some of them have been back for 13 years, some of them, I think, are, are, are fresh, they're newer, <laughs> but some of them came back with that first wave of people with Ezra, but for the first time since they've been back, now that the walls are built, they have safety from their enemies to actually worship. They have free time. They have free time. Now, do you ever have a surprise free morning or evening open up in your, your week? Isn't that an awesome thing? You know, you look at your calendar and you realize, oh, I don't have any appointments tomorrow. Um, I, don't, I don't have any meetings. I don't have anywhere I need to be. Or, or you look and you see, hey, this is the first time in like five years. We don't have to cart any of the kids to a sporting event or a concert or a, a lesson. We're just going to be home. We, we have a free night. We're all, we're all going to be together. It's a special treat. Well, what do you do with that time? When you have free time, no interruptions, no obligations. That's the idea. The wall's up. Nobody can interrupt them. When you have that, that moment, nobody's going to interrupt you. Do you say, at last... I can finally read my Bible in peace. Or do you say, at last, I can finally watch the next episode of Better Call Saul? Where are your priorities? What do you do with the time that God's given you? They had free time, and they wanted to read their Bibles. Well, if that puts you to shame, just wait for what's next. See how long they read it for. Look at verse 3. Ezra read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. We're talking about five, six hours. When was the last time you read your Bible for six hours straight? Um, how about three hours, two hours, one hour, 30 minutes? If we are to be a people of the book, we must exalt God's word by giving it the thing that is most precious to us, and that is our time. So it's the only thing that we can give that nobody can ever give back to us, right? We lend people our car. They can, even if they wreck it, they can get us a new one. We loan people our money. We expect them to pay it back. When we give people our time, it's gone. It's a very precious commodity. So if you want to know what somebody loves, you see where they spend their time, how they spend their time. Do you spend your time in God's word? Fathers, husbands in particular, are you leading your family in this way by ensuring that your family has time to be in God's word? Do you ensure that your family is spending a significant amount of time in the Bible? Or is there no time left with all the uh, obligations that fill up the family calendar? When people think about you or they think about your family, do they think this family, they're a family of the book? Or do they think they're a family of the ball game? They give it their time. That's how they exalt it. They also give it their attention. The end of verse 3. The, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So you may struggle to give uh, God's word the time it deserves. Join the club. Um, that, that demands, though, our repentance, and it demands our reprioritization, if that's true, if we're not giving it the time. Uh, but even so, 
there is still a time where you are given the opportunity to hear God's word, and that's at church. We read it every week, every Sunday, morning and evening, from, from the Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, the question then, when the Bible's being read, is do you pay attention? Do you actually pay attention to it? I worry for some of you who read your Bibles on your, your iPads or your iPhones uh, that uh, you're not giving it the attention it deserves because there are push notifications likely coming in. And the reason I say that is because anytime I try to read my Bible on my phone, uh, that's what happens to me and I get distracted. It's hard. Or, or if you're watching on the live stream, how, how easy it is, something we can't do when we're in church necessarily, but you know, you're watching a live stream and you can just open up another browser and... And, yeah, you hear what's going on, kind of, but you can also, I don't know, do some banking if you need to, scroll through Facebook, maybe do a little shopping. I mean, it's still there. You're, you're kind of giving it, you know, the left eye is over there a little bit and the right eye is doing Are we giving it the attention that it deserves? The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives helpful tips on how we must read the Word of God. Question answer 90. That the Word may become effectual to salvation. We must attend to it with diligence, with preparation and prayer. We must receive it with faith and love. We must lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. And I think prayer is the most important thing. That the word can become effectual to save us. We must go to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. That's the reason why the prayer for illumination in our services, uh, which I would say is perhaps the second most important prayer that we have in our service, boys and girls, you can... Find me after the service and tell me what you think Pastor Cruz would say is the most important prayer that we have in our service, each each, uh, service, morning and evening. But we have the prayer for illumination before the scripture is read, not just between the reading and then the preaching, which is very common practice in in a lot of churches. Uh, Often when we have guest preachers who are used to that, you'll notice we sing that hymn and you guys are all waiting for them to pray. And you're still standing up, and they've got, they said, sit down, we're going to start reading. It's a little, we're thrown off, that's fine. But the reason we do it is actually theologically, uh, practically significant. We have the prayer for illumination before the reading of the scripture because we need the Spirit's help not just to understand a sermon, but to pay attention to the reading of God's word. That's a divine thing that's saying a supernatural thing is happening. God is speaking to us. And you know what the devil wants when something supernatural is taking place? When, when God is speaking to his people, he wants us to look at the, the pattern on the carpet or, or the, the different pattern on the stone wall. We need the Spirit's help just to pay attention to the Bible being read. And that's why we have that prayer there. And the people, they give the word their attention. But they finally, they exalt the word of God by giving it its proper place. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. Look at verse 4. And Ezra, uh, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. The word for platform in Hebrew could actually be translated tower. Uh, what is happening here in many respects is just logistical. It's a practical matter. It's the best means for 40,000 plus people to hear an open air preacher. And that's what verse 5 explains. Uh, but there's still something significant in the elevation of God's word. At the time of the Reformation, many ministers um, were trying to teach that lesson of the preeminence or the ultimacy of God's word to their congregants in the architecture of the sanctuary. It was... What, what was known as the altar, we would call it the table, the Lord's Supper. We don't call it an altar because Christ is being sacrificed again. But it was the altar that was um, the, the most prominent part of 
of uh, the structure in the Roman Catholic medieval church. And uh, the podium was generally to the left or the right side of uh, the front. And it was the reformers who said, we're going to put it in the middle and we're going to put it up high. So people see what? That the Bible is the most important thing about being a Christian. That we bow to the word of God. It's above us. We're not above it. When Carrie Ann and I had the opportunity to be in Geneva last summer, we got to visit St. Pierre's Cathedral where Calvin preached most of his uh, ministry. And, and sure enough, there's, there's this um, uh, pulpit, which really should be translated probably tower. It's a spiral spindly staircase to get up to the top. Maybe some of you would get vertigo getting up there. But that was just a way to say... This is what we think about the word of God. And that's what the people are doing here. Notice how they respond literally by bowing to it. Did you notice that? Uh, Beginning in verse 5, we see that Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above the people. And then verse 6, he blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen and amen. And they lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces To the ground. Old Testament commentator uh, Marvin Brenneman says this is the threefold manner in which they uh, pointed uh, to the the exaltation of God's word. They lifted up their hands and they showed their their need of it. They said, Amen, Amen, showing their submission to it. They would agree to it. And finally, they bowed to the ground with a sense of humility and submission to God. So, uh, God's good word is exalted, but it's also explained. It's explained, it's exalted by the people and explained by the leaders. Ezra and a team of helpers um, make it their mission to ensure that the people understood what was being preached to them or what was being read to them. They help the people to understand the law. We read there, while the people remained in their places. This is verse 7 now into verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood. Part of the issue here is one of translation, actually. Um, the, the, the Hebrew for the people was, was rusty. Kind of like mine is after seminary. My Hebrew is very rusty. But the difference here is that um, these people were actually Hebrews. And they didn't know their own language. Why? Well, for 70 years, they'd been living in a place where they spoke a different language entirely. They were in Babylon, Persia. And so they'd forgotten even their own common tongue. And so uh, Ezra and and his helpers need to translate it, literally translate so they could understand. Because they'd become, over those generations while they were in exile, they'd become so far removed from the context of when that word was originally given. Is that much different from our situation today? We are so far removed from the original setting of the scriptures that even uh, when they're translated in English, we still have trouble understanding it. It's so foreign to us. What is this all about? What's happening here? And so we need help understanding concepts and terms so that we can know what God is really saying and why it matters. And that is preaching. That's what preaching is. God blesses the reading of the word, the shorter catechism says, but especially the preaching of the word. And that's what's happening here. Ezra and his team are preaching. Verse 8 gives us a great definition of preaching. You want to know what preaching is? It's simply to give the sense of the Bible so that the people 
understood the words declared to them or read to them. Preaching is not given life tips, um, life hacks. Preaching is not to tickle the ears with uh, quaint jokes. Uh, Preaching is not for the the minister to give his own uh, personal uh, opinion on a whole host of matters. Well, because that would be to remove preaching from the word of God. But preaching is to explain the word of God. To give the sense clearly so that the people understand. The best kind of preaching is the one when the people, the hearers, leave the sermon saying, you know, that made total sense to me. I might not have, I, I might not have seen it before. I might not have understood it before, but I see it now. I don't know how I could have missed it. it be, it's become so clear to me. Derek Thomas uh, one of my favorite preachers said that after some sermons, people will come up to him and they're shaking his hand. They'll say, you know, that was a really deep message. And he says they mean it to, to, um, as a compliment. But he said that's one of the worst things a preacher could ever be told. It's not meant to be deep. You're meant to get the sense. It's meant to click. That's preaching. So that people can say, I see what it's been saying and I get it. Now... This was really good preaching, but that meant a problem for Israel because what did they get? What clicked for them? They're sinners. The law is read, and then the law is explained. And what's the conclusion? We are in trouble. So look at verse 9 and following. The people begin to weep. All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now remember, we said there's a similarity between what's happening here and what happened at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. God gives his law, his holy law, as a means of forming the people. Now he's giving that same law as a means of reforming the people. But initially, when Israel received the law, they received it with fear and trembling because it comes from a holy God and it demanded strict obedience. Here they don't receive it with fear and trembling. They receive it with tears because the initial giving of the law was a call to holiness. Now as it's given here... It's, a, it's a, an indictment. It's a clear indication how they have fallen short of that call to holiness. And that's why they've been in exile after all. And so now with the walls complete, the sin that made such a project necessary and the grace of God that made that project possible is so overwhelming that the people can only cry. That's what's happening. Right now that they're back in their homes and the city walls have been complete, they realize it was their sin that made that rebuilding project a necessity in the first place. And it was God's grace to them that made it possible. But Ezra, now joined by Nehemiah and some other leaders, he wants the people to focus instead of on their sin, on God's good grace. That's our final thing. We saw God's good timing just so they could hear God's good word And now as they explain it, they emphasize God's good grace. And notice they call them not to weep on account of the time. Verse 9. This day is holy to the Lord your God. This day do not mourn or weep. It's not that the weeping was inappropriate. It's that uh, what was inappropriate was weeping in this particular setting or at this particular time. Ecclesiastes says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. This is not the time for mourning. 
That will come, and it does come um, at the end of the month, the seventh month, and it comes in chapter 9. We'll read about that. We'll get there soon enough. Uh, But where are we now? We're at the start of the best month of all. We're at the start of the holidays. And they're saying this is not the time to weep. This is the time to rejoice in God's provision. Uh, And it's something they're getting to do for the first time in a reconstructed, in the reconstructed city of God. Not only do they not want the people to cry, they want them to feast. They say, and if, if your neighbor doesn't have any food, you invite them over for dinner. This is going to be an awesome time of rejoicing. Why? Again, because the day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. And then what does, they, what does uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, as they speak to the people, what do they say there? Verse 10, do not be grieved. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. There it is, the only verse that we know from Nehemiah, right? Uh, Nehemiah's a bit of an obscure book, and yet almost, I bet, every Christian has heard that verse before. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And there's a reason it's worth knowing, because of the truth packed in there is so comforting. So why is it comforting? Why is that what they would say to the Israelites who are mourning their sin that caused them to go into exile? What is the joy of the Lord? How is it our strength? First, understand that the phrase, the joy of the Lord, it's talking about a joy that the Lord himself possesses. It is the Lord's joy. It's God's joy. It's something uh, Nehemiah is talking about something that makes God happy, something that makes God joyful, something that brings God Pleasure. And what is it that brought pleasure to God or that brings God this joy? All Israel, all the Israelites had to do was look around them and they could find out what brought God pleasure. Bringing them back to the city that that he promised salvation would come from. And they screwed that all up, didn't they, in their sin. And they were exiled. And yet it was God's good pleasure. It was his joy to bring them back. To not treat them as their sins deserve. To reestablish, to reform them as his people. God's joy was reestablishing his wayward people in the land of covenant and promise. And he was pleased to do this despite their sin. And so it's almost as though Nehemiah is saying, why are you weeping when God is rejoicing? He's so happy right now. This is what he's wanted to do. He loves saving. That's God's heart. His heart is mercy. And he's pouring out his mercy. He's showing you this is what he's all about. And you're crying. He's not crying. He's not upset. He's not mad. There's joy in the Lord in doing this. And that joy is meant to be the strength of the people. It could also be translated, this is your stronghold. This is your refuge. So you put that all together, and Nehemiah is essentially saying this. When God himself is pleased, literally has pleasure, has happiness, to grant you salvation, to save you, then you need to understand that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can keep you from that salvation. When God is determined to delight in saving you, Nothing can bring you from his grasp. Nothing can take you. Nothing can steal you away. The joy of the Lord is your stronghold. The joy of the Lord is your refuge. I think there's something of Romans 8 in there, isn't there? Although, to be honest with you, I see Romans 8 everywhere now. But Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How would he not also with him graciously give us what? 
all things. That's, that's the preaching that's taking place right now in Nehemiah chapter 8. That's what the people are hearing. They're saying, God's for you. Why are you crying? He's, he's going to give you all things. He's brought you back to the city. And it clicks for the people. We're told that in verse 12. They get it. They see that God is for them. And in verse 12, all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing. If God's going to rejoice, we're going to rejoice. Why? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. It's as though the narrator is saying that they did not understand the words that were declared to them until they understood God's good grace. Even though Ezra read the law and he preached the law, they didn't get God's word until they got God's gospel. And friends, I want to say the same thing to you tonight. You don't understand God's word until you see both its law and its gospel. Its demands, but also its deliverances. Its precepts, but also its promises. This is gospel preaching done by Ezra, by Nehemiah, by the Levites. Gospel preaching is, yeah, you're a sinner. Yeah, you are worse, worse than you could, than, than you even know. But God is greater than you could ever dream up or ever imagine. That's gospel preaching. Yeah, you're a sinner, but don't weep because God's happy right now to save you. And until you hear that gospel preaching, the law of God is just overwhelming. The law of God is only damning. It can only make you weep and cry. Without the gospel, the law will be viewed disproportionately. Or without gospel preaching... The law will be viewed in disproportion to God's gospel. I think before the elders, the leaders exhorted them not to cry. Remember, they said, don't cry because this is a day of feasting, a day of celebration. When we're back in the city of God, the holidays are about to start. I imagine that the people probably skipped right over some of the things that Ezra had been, had been uh, reading to them from Deuteronomy. Like this passage from Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Four, it says, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord had scattered you. And even if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you and bring you back. Ezra undoubtedly read that. But it's so the people didn't get it. All they heard was the law. All they heard was their sin. All they saw was the holiness of God and the waywardness of man. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, the Levites, have to say, no, 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 no. Let me tell you about God's good grace. Let me tell you about the joy of the Lord. God said he would bring you back. And now you know. It's not a fantasy. Now you know. It, it's, it's, it's not wishful thinking. The people were experiencing the promises of God in the land of promise. How could they... They weep. This was a day to celebrate God's grace, to celebrate his gospel. And the same is true for you and me today, tonight. We celebrate the very same good news. Today, today we celebrate the gospel of the Son of God, where love in all of its splendor shines. It's the story, in the story of the gospel, that we hear that even though we were sinners, wandering and lost and alienated from God, Christ came, he reconciles us, he brings us back, he brings us home. That's the good grace announced in the good word. It is all in the book. And so do you see what you risk missing out on when you are not a person of the book, when you do not read this book? Oh, you would miss out reading what Paul announces 
In Corinthians, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. It's all in there. Can you afford to miss out on that good grace, on that good news? No, you can't. So read it. Receive it. Revere it. And rejoice in its message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you truly for your word. And because your word does contain the sweetest news that there is, that we are sinners who've been made right with you by Jesus Christ, we ask that we would cling to it. Give us something of the reverence, the exaltation, the, 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 uh, the love that the Israelites has, had for your law. Give us that for your scriptures today. That we would give it our time and our attention. That it would be of first importance in our lives. Because truly without your word we live. Would we meditate upon your law day and night. And in doing so would you plant us like trees by the flowing and living waters. And that we would bear much fruit for you. We pray this for Jesus sake. Amen.